Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. The Word of God speaks to us. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Thanks, Stacy. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. If we have not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's good to worship Jesus with you today. Uh, hey, our, uh, our bread and butter, our kind of our diet as a church is to take books of the Bible and work our way through chapter by chapter through those books. That's what you can typically expect on a Sunday. Um, but kind of as we start the year, we're doing something a little bit different. So we're doing something different uh, today, starting a new series on the mission of the church, which I'll talk more about in just a moment. And then in three weeks' time, we're going to start a new sermon series on grace, uh, which is just something that, man, we have to come back to again and again and again as the people of God. Uh, And then we'll uh, get back into a book of the Bible after Easter. That'll take us all the way through Easter. So uh, you can kind of expect us to jump back into a book, but we've we've spent, you know, the better part of a year in the Gospel of Mark. We spent over a year in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've spent significant time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we wanted to kind of rally behind some pastoral burdens that we had as a church. So uh, excited about today. I'm excited to be with you. Uh, Hey, could I pray for us and pray for you? Maybe while I'm praying, you could pray for me. Does that sound good? All right. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be in a room of people that are literally all over the place in relationship to you. There are people in the room that have been walking with you. I'm looking out, seeing people who have been walking with you for 50, 60 years. And there's other people who just became Christians that we haven't even got to baptize yet. And there's other people in the room that don't yet follow you. And so thank you for just the the diversity that's in this room. And thank you that your love is on every single individual. And I pray today that your love would do what it does. It would hit our hearts. It would shape the way we think and believe. It would realign us in ways we need to be realigned. We pray that it would bring us to repentance where we need that. And I just confess, God, there's so many ways that myself and probably my friends here fall short of your ideal. And we today, we want to say yes to you. We want to obey you. We want to, we, we want to follow you more and more. And we're thankful that even in our failures that you're good to us. So come and move. I pray as we look at this text today in Acts that you would shape this church. This is your church. There's nothing today that I could say that's going to be helpful at all apart from your Holy Spirit. So come and move and work. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to read this to you and let you think about it for just a minute. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Let me read it one more time. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know this, 
But believe it or not, that's the original mission statement of Harvard University, founded in 1636. Harvard, as some of you know, maybe you didn't know, Harvard was founded originally as a university that hired only explicitly Christian professors, that put a high value and emphasis on spiritual formation among its students, and it was actually created in the first place to be a university that was going to deploy men for the gospel in New England and all across the world. It was essentially a mission or a university that was trying to establish and train and resource pastors almost what you would think of as a seminary. In fact, if you graduated from Harvard University in those first uh, few years, you would get a diploma that in Latin read these words, truth for Christ and the church. And it's ironic, isn't it, that only 80 years after, 80 years after, a group of New England pastors felt like Harvard had slipped into ultra-liberal progressivism theologically, and so they started another university to combat the secularization of Harvard And that university was called Yale. Now today, Yale and Harvard are not explicitly Christian. In fact, they they are sort of the pinnacle of anti-Christian progressivism in our culture today. It's pretty crazy. And you just wonder, like, how did that happen? How, How does Yale and Harvard go from being explicitly Christian to almost explicitly anti-Christian in our own culture today? Well, the answer to that is something called missional drift. They forgot who they were, and they forgot why they were, and they drifted. And drift is the natural regression of every single thing in your life and in my life. Uh, You cannot do to your body or my body what I did to my body uh, during Christmas break and wake up with a six-pack. It just doesn't work. Like uh, damage was done, mistakes were made, uh, things were devoured and eaten, and and now I've got to live with the consequences of that. Uh, the, the, The natural kind of regression, if you will, of your relationships, your marriage, uh, your jobs, your, any, any organization that you're a part of, your life, your body, your bank account, doesn't matter. It's all from order to chaos. It's all towards drift. And you don't drift into maturity and depth. You drift into further chaos. And friends, the perennial struggle of the church of Jesus is drift. It's mission drift. It's forgetting who we are and why we are. The church in every culture, every generation, every moment that it finds itself in has to find itself a recovery, if you will, not of what it looks like to be relevant or not trying to to be uh, cool to whatever culture it finds itself in. The church has to instead go back and find the ancient stuff again and recover what it looks like to be the timeless people of God who stand under the timeless word of God and live in a way, in whatever culture they find themselves in, that's different from the world for the gift and blessing of the world. That's the goal. The goal is not relevancy. It's resilience around Jesus and his mission. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to take the next three weeks and we're going to talk about the mission of Frontline Church, multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. Now, now here, here's my argument. My argument to you is that even though that's our mission as a church in Oklahoma City, that that's not just our mission, that other churches have different ways of expressing it, different mission statements, if you will. But I would argue that from the, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 to the final return of Jesus when he comes back to make all things new, this really is a way to summarize the mission of the church. 
multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. That's a way to say what the church is supposed to be about, no matter where they find themselves in, no matter what culture, no matter what part of the world, no matter what time frame. This is the mission, in many ways, of the church, even though different churches might state it differently. And so here's what we're going to do. Today, I'm going to take the first three words of that, multiplying gospel communities. I want to tell you what we mean by that. What do we mean when we say that we're a church who multiplies gospel communities? Um, I I know that about 25 of you or so were just in a membership class upstairs in our nine o'clock service, and you're like, are you kidding me? I just heard this. Well, you're going to hear it again, but hopefully it'll be a little bit different than what you just heard. This is so important for us to come back to because this is what we are all about as a church. And I don't know of a better place to take you than Acts chapter 13. Uh, Acts, if you don't know, is the story of the church. And from chapter 1 to 28, there's about a 30-year span of time. And in that 30-year span of time, we see the church multiply from a small ragtag group of 120 people in Jerusalem, mainly Jewish, to by the end of Acts 28, 30 years later, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, who were worshiping Jesus as Lord in the heart of Rome. Just 30 years, the church multiplied gospel community all throughout Acts. And in the middle of that, Acts 13, almost the very middle of that, Acts 13 tells us about a church at Antioch that I've been meditating on as I've thought about what it means for us to be a multiplying gospel community. There's markers here for us that I think, if you'll pay attention, can shape the way that we function as a church. Now, as I go through this, I want to give you five of them, five different aspects or markers of a multiplying gospel community. And what I want you to do, if you're a follower of Jesus, is try to evaluate where you are on these. Because I think there's going to be some on this list that you would say, yep, check, we're doing this really well. And I think there's going to be others on this list that you would say, man, this, this is a deficiency for us. But, but here's the point. Community exists in a lot of different ways. A gospel community is completely different. You can have community around bikes. I'm down for that. I love bikes. I'd love to have community around bikes. You can have community around beer. There's different pubs that you can go to in the city, and they'll even say, like, our mission is to create community around beer. You can do that. You can have community around hobbies and interests. You can have community around political perspectives or whatever, but a gospel community is something totally totally different. With that in mind, five things I want you to see. Let's jump in. Acts 13, 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It's bizarre. I just want you to stop. Here's the first thing I want you to see is a gospel community exists because of Jesus. A gospel community exists because of Jesus. Did you notice the bizarre nature of this core team at the church of Antioch? These are people that otherwise have absolutely nothing in common and do not belong at the same table or in the same room together, and yet here they are all in the church at Antioch. Let me just go back through the list. Look at it. It says prophets and teachers. You have people who have very different gifts, very different personalities, very different passions, prophets and teachers, and the church of Antioch had both together. You have Barnabas, who we know from history was a Jewish man, 
You have Simeon, who is called Niger. Uh, the, the word Niger in Latin literally means black, so uh, most scholars think that this was a black man from Africa who had made his way to Antioch and was a part of the church there. You've got Lucius of Cyrene, which is also in Africa, but that's a Roman colony, so you've got a Roman Gentile as well. Then you've got this guy named Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? Well, history will tell you that Herod's dad was a guy by the name of Herod the Great. And if you remember from all the Christmas stories, Herod the Great, this guy's dad, was the guy who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And the slaughter of the innocents had every male Jewish boy two years of age and under killed in his region trying to kill Jesus. Well, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, this, this guy that we're reading about right here, he was also the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded and played a significant role in the execution of Jesus on a cross. So imagine this Menaean is a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, a lifelong friend. That makes for a really awkward family meal conversation, doesn't it? Who's your friend? You're the guy that killed Jesus? Yeah, that's, he's a lifelong friend, actually. We go way back. We're really good buddies, right? This is bizarre. And then you've got, it says, Saul. And we know from history that Saul was at one time a diehard Jewish Pharisee, rigorously obeying the laws of God in the Torah, and was hell-bent on destroying the church, played a role in executing one of the first deacons of the early church. I mean, friends, this is a bizarre community group. This is a bizarre church. You have people that are ethnically different. You have people that are culturally different. You have people that are politically different. You have people that religiously see things very differently, and yet here they are together in the church in Antioch. Why? Because of Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not come just to bring us to himself, but he also came to bring us back to one another in real community. Sin is the, the core of what fractures human community apart. And Jesus came to uh, both forgive us of our sins and reconcile us back to the Father, and yet also create a countercultural community where literally the only thing that we have in common in this room is Jesus. There are people in this room that vote differently than you, that see the world differently than you, that believe things that you don't believe. There are people in this world that are from different uh, socioeconomic statuses, different parts of our city or world. I mean, there's so much ethnic and, and otherwise diversity in this room alone. And why are we together? What do we have in common? Well, we all don't vote the same or look the same or have the same sorts of hobbies and interests. We are together because of Jesus. He is the foundation for this church. He's the foundation for our community. So if you're curious and you're coming in as someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, we're not here because we all think the same way. And we're not here because we all uh, have, you know, wanted to just turn our lives around and try to be more good than we are bad. We are here because of the grace of Jesus. That's why we're here. It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. I love this in Life Together. There's a book, a little book called Life Together, written by a German theologian who was kind of around during the rise of the Third Reich, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote this amazing book that's definitely worth your time. And here's what he says. He says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God and Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and the strength and the promise of all of our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray for it and hope for it. Now, here's why this matters. In our cultural moment, we live in a moment that talks about diversity more than most cultures have in a long time. 
And that's great, right? We have a value culturally for diversity. The problem is, alongside of our value for diversity, we also have a value for finding extreme identity, saying the most important thing about a person is in one of three categories. It's in your ethnicity. So everything most important about you is in your ethnicity, or it's in your gender and sexuality, or it's in the way that you vote. And yet we have a value for diversity. So what we're saying is the thing that matters more than anything else is one of these three items. It's how you represent yourself in the world. It's the core of who you are, but also let's be diverse. And the reality is, friends, that does not work together at all. It actually are two values that cannot coexist in the same way that our culture would like to see, which is why we are becoming more and more fractured and tribal and polarized from one another. So it's ironic, isn't it, that in a culture that talks about diversity as much as us, we've got such a skewed basis of identity and understanding of who we are that we're now fracturing into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller groups, which makes us less diverse. What's the solution to that? Well, there isn't real diversity apart from Jesus. There just isn't, friends. This is the basis and the foundation because what we're saying is the most important thing about us is not the way we vote. It's not my ethnicity. It's not my gender or sexuality. The most important thing about me is Jesus. He's the identity. He's the core. And so that actually gives me standing and ground with you because I now see you through Jesus and you see me through Jesus And that creates real gospel community. Our world needs this. Our world needs gospel community. And that leads me to the second thing, because there's more to say about gospel community. There's more to to see here. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, I love this, the Holy Spirit said, I don't know how he did this, if he was like, this is the Holy Spirit here. You know, I I don't know exactly what this looked like, but the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. The second thing I want you to see is that a gospel community exists not just because of Jesus, but under the authority of God. Notice what this very diverse, very different background of people are doing together. They're worshiping the Lord. Not Caesar as Lord, not the Greek or Roman pantheon of gods. You have all of these different, various, odd, strange people that are together, and they're doing one thing. They're worshiping Jesus as Lord. And they're even fasting, which is a way to say that they're saying no to their desires, even good desires, like food, to worship Jesus and feast on him instead. This is a church that doesn't just exist together because of Jesus, but this is a church that exists together because of Jesus underneath the authority of God. They're not just Barnabas the Jew and Simeon the African and Lucius the Roman and Manan the wealthy guy who's friends with Herod the Tetrarch and then that guy Saul. No, they're all those people who have been transformed by the grace of Jesus and now are underneath the authority of God. This is significant for understanding real community. In fact, they're so submitted to the authority of God that in the middle of their church service, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, hey, I want you to take two of your most important leaders and send them off. And they're like, yes, sir, Holy Spirit, we'll do that right away. Let us just fast and pray a little bit more, and then we're going to do it. And that's exactly what they do. They're literally worshiping. Imagine what we were just doing together. And the Spirit of God comes and says something, and they respond with a yes. They're submitted to his authority. Friends, a gospel community 
is both simultaneously the most inclusive group of people on the planet and also the most exclusive community on the planet. Gospel community, real gospel community, is the most inclusive and simultaneously the most exclusive. It's a paradox. Let me tell you what I mean. Mark 8, 34, listen to this. It says, And calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, quote, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the most inclusive because Jesus is saying, Hey, if anybody would come after me, they're welcome to. So anybody, you don't have to be uh, voting this way or that way. You don't have to have the same background. It doesn't matter what your past is. Hey, you could have the most bizarre, sinful, busted up, broken history. None of that actually really matters. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Anybody, whoever wants to come after me, Jesus says, they're welcome. You can come. It's the most inclusive community on the planet. And yet, it's simultaneously the most exclusive because notice what he says. If you want to do this, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the entry point into this community is open to everybody. You just have to walk through the door of Jesus Christ to get there. And if you don't want to walk through the door of Jesus Christ, then you can't get into the gospel community. He's saying, hey, it's welcome. It's open. It's the most inclusive. You're going to have the most diverse, bizarre groups of people that come together, but they all have come together and walked through the door of Jesus. This is what gospel community really looks like. And here's why that matters. This is setting aside how gospel community is different than, say, the coexist bumper stickers that you still occasionally see on people's cars, right? The, the coexist bumper stickers is essentially like, let's all learn to get along. It doesn't really matter what your religion is or what your belief system is. Let's all just learn to get along, which I'm kind of like, yeah, I think we're already doing that, sort of. I mean, we've always kind of been bad at that, but I guess if we want to put that on our bumper sticker. So the idea is like, as long as you're not doing anything bad or hurting anybody, you can believe what you want to believe and do whatever you want to do. Let's just coexist. Well, gospel community is not actually saying that. Gospel community is not saying, hey, let's all just come together and it doesn't matter really what we believe or what we do or how we live or any. No, actually, gospel community is different because what we're saying is we are together solely because of the grace of Jesus. And yet that grace is changing us from the inside out slowly, painfully over time to where more and more and more we're looking at each other in the eyes and saying, let's be under the authority of God together. Let's be under his authority together. Let's submit our lives to him. Let's together worship Jesus as Lord. Let's even say no to good desires like food to worship him together. We're more and more having our loves, our vision of the good life, our vision of identity, our vision of purpose and meaning in the world aligned around Jesus and his kingdom. That's what sets gospel community apart from all the other faux communities that exist in our world. That leads me to the third thing I want you to see. Look at verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice that word, sent. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia. This is Barnabas and Paul. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, look at what they did. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Third thing I want you to see is that a gospel community exists not just together because of Jesus, not just under the authority of God, but for the sake of the mission. It's crazy, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit runs a perfectly good core team at Antioch. I mean, if you have this core team, you have Barnabas and Saul, it's like, 
Let's not do anything to disrupt this. If Saul and Barnabas are in your community group, don't multiply community groups. You know what I mean? Like, we've finally got it all together. We've got prophets and teachers. They're finally getting along. We've got, you know, the different ethnicities together. We've got Barnabas, who's super encouraging, and Saul, who's at times just a total jerk. But we're all together, and it's all working. Let's all just keep it the way it is. But the Holy Spirit doesn't allow that to happen, does he? He actually disrupts a perfectly good church, and he says, I need the two of your best, and you're going to send them out. In fact, the word send occurs 40 times in the book of Acts, and almost every single time in Acts, it's used of God sending people out on mission, sending people out for the sake of the gospel. What God is saying here through the Holy Spirit is that inherently he is a sending God. The Father sends the Son to the earth. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Spirit comes along and sends us as the people of God into the world on mission. This is what happens at Antioch, and you've got Barnabas and Saul who are sent to literally go find people who are far from God and share the good news of Jesus with them. This is what it is to be a multiplying gospel community. We multiply because people are far from God and they live in other places and they're from different uh, backgrounds and different cultures and God has a heart to see those people who are far from him brought to him. This is the mission. This is why, by the way, Frontline has it a part of our mission to multiply gospel communities. This is why we send our best leaders like John Murphy, one of my best friends, to Fayetteville, North Carolina, who planted a church across from Fort Bragg, which is where they do all the military training for the special ops guys. He, he was a special ops in the, in the Army Rangers at one point, so understands that culture, has a heart to see those people come to know Jesus was doing great here on our team at Frontline and left to go plant a church because he had a heart to see those people come to know Jesus. This is why we send out our best, like Sujith and Cheryl Jacob, to Mumbai, India, because there are people right now who live and breathe in Mumbai who are far from God, and God loves them, and he sees them, and he longs for them to come to know him. This is why we send out Tim Kimberly to rural Iowa to plant a church called Sacred Mission in his hometown of 500 people because God calls about not just, he cares not just about the big cities, but he cares about rural towns with 500 people in them. God is ascending God and we are here, friends, for the mission of God. This is actually why we multiply community groups. Some of you are like, but my community group finally got awesome. It's been not awesome for so long, and it finally got awesome, and, and now it's big, and y'all are telling us we got a multi. Yeah, it's, it's, you can't fit 35 people in a house and do the things that we're called to do as the people of God effectively. So you've got to multiply. Sorry, this is the heart of what God is all about. For the mission is why you're here. For the mission. I love this quote from Christopher Wright. He says, the Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. And we're going to talk more about what that mission is in the next two weeks to love God, love people, and to push back darkness. We'll talk about that. But friends, I just want you to catch God's heart here. You do not exist here for you if you're a follower of Jesus. You just don't. And you don't exist for an insular group of people to make that group of people super duper awesome. You don't exist to like really nail it and get spiritual formation down to its best so that Jesus comes back and we're all really mature. 
Spiritual formation is great and necessary and good, but it exists alongside of a greater reality, which is so that we could be formed as the unique people of God in the world for the sake of the mission. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're here for the sake of the mission. This is the mandate on your life. And that's why we multiply gospel communities. That leads me to the fourth thing I want you to see. Look at verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they're on mission. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So the proconsul is a really wealthy, really important city leader, and he wants to hear more about Jesus. So Barnabas and Paul are going to tell him, but look at verse 8. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, that Bar-Jesus guy, Elymas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He doesn't want the proconsul to become a Christian. He's, he's actively tr- trying to push him away from the faith. The, the fourth thing I want you to see about a gospel community is that a gospel community exists in enemy-occupied territory. We're in enemy-occupied territory. That Yes, it's true that we've been sent out on mission, but we've been sent out on mission behind enemy lines, as it were. That we, as a gospel community, the church of Jesus as a gospel community, actually exists in enemy-occupied territory. And you say, well, what enemy? What's our enemy? Well, our enemy isn't people that vote differently than you or act differently than you or whatever. Our real enemies are Satan, the world, and the flesh, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, these are the enemies that are actively waging war against us and the church. So here's what I mean. The world is the systems and the structures that are energized by forces of darkness to try to oppose what God stands for. The flesh doesn't need much help. That's the part of us that still longs to disobey Jesus. The part of us that still longs to sin, even though we don't want to, there's a part of us that does want to. That's the flesh. And then the devil is not some, you know, small guy who stands on your shoulder wearing red pajamas. We actually have a real enemy who seeks to kill and steal from people and destroy. We have an enemy who, when people sin, wants to shame them so badly over their sin that they don't ever recover from it. We have an enemy who wants to lie about all kinds of things that God has made good and and lie about things and say that God is holding out on us what's really good. And and we have an enemy who in, in a million ways is constantly opposing us. So friends, my point is this. Though we are sent out on mission, we should expect opposition at every level. Opposition is a money back guarantee reality for the church. Now you can experience opposition from the world by being a jerk, that's not what we're talking about here. You can also experience opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil by just trying to be faithful. And this is what we're talking about. I want you to remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are you when, not if, not maybe, but blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just do a survey of Old Testament leaders, New Testament leaders, the early church, all the way down through the ages, and churches even right now in different parts of the world, and this is exactly what they're experiencing. Persecution, being reviled, the world thinking that we're the evil ones. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep, in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then this line had me kind of laughing a little bit, chuckling a little bit. Verse 17, beware of men. You're like, well, who? He's like, just men. Who? who? People. Beware of people. People are cray. Cray cray. Is that, is that what the kids are saying? I don't know. No, they're not saying that. No, I'm getting some younger people are doing this and my wife's face is very red right now. So he, he says, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. This will happen. You're going to be beaten, arrested, possibly murdered, all because you were faithful to me. Now, in our culture today, what we're going to face probably is not physical persecution. I, I, I really doubt that in our generation we're going to see, maybe we will, but I doubt that we'll see physical persecution. But I think that it's a, a, a money-back guarantee that we will see cultural shame for attaching ourselves to Jesus and his ways. I think that we will have people who look at us and roll their eyes or assume that we're bigots or think that we're backwards and outdated because we claim the name of Jesus. And friends, I just want you to realize if you're going to be a church that multiplies gospel communities, if you're going to be a church that actually is sent out into the world, you will find yourself in enemy-occupied territory. And we're actually supposed to be there so that we can establish a little outpost of the kingdom of God so that people who are far from God can be brought in. We're in enemy-occupied territory. One more thing I want you to see. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is unbelievable. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Fifth thing I want you to see, and lastly, is that a gospel community exists to confront darkness and the power of the Holy Spirit. We exist to confront darkness and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of ways that darkness needs to be pushed back in our culture. We're gonna talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But friends, the point stands that the church exists, and yes, we will experience opposition, but we are called to be a church that confronts darkness, not in our own human strength, not in our wisdom or brilliance, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, now there's a lot we could say about that, but I want to make one pastoral observation here that has been messing with me as I've thought about Acts 13. There's an area where I think you and I need to grow as a church. Here's what I think we have a grid for. We have a grid for the Holy Spirit filling up people to do good things, like raise the dead or heal the sick or cast out demons, or help us resist sin and temptation, or live faithfully to Jesus, or preach and evangelize with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. We have, we have this all throughout the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is filling up normal, everyday, average people like you and I to do amazing things. But we don't really have a grid for this type of thing. When you read about a miracle that's fill, someone filled with the Spirit causing a person to go blind is not what you would think of when you would think of a Spirit-empowered miracle, something that God would do. And my point is this, that what we see Paul doing here is fascinating because Paul here is filled with the Holy Spirit to speak and act courageously 
against what is evil. And I think this is a lost trait for our generation as a church. We actually need the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, to have a backbone. Notice who Paul's talking to. Notice. Is it a fellow Christian? Is Paul correcting a church that's gone astray? Now, there's a place for all of that, but notice who Paul is speaking to. Quote, a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. This person, this Elimaeus, is, quote, full of deceit and villainy, and he's someone who tried to make, quote, crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Paul is speaking to someone who isn't a Christian. Do you have a category for that? Do you have a category for standing up with a backbone and not being a jerk, not being unnecessarily rude, but having the Holy Spirit fill you to have courage, to actually speak frankly and plainly and honestly about things or ideas or ideologies or people who are crooked and living in total unrighteousness, actively trying to lead people astray from Jesus. I think that in a day and age like ours where you've got people who put on podcasts trashing the church to make a living, literally, like you can do that in our culture. You can get hired on, and I won't say, I won't say where, but you can get hired on at a certain newspaper that's online, and you can create podcasts and literally make a living trashing the church and trashing Christians. In a day where we have a category for that, we've lost the category for standing up and saying, that's wrong, that's not good, that's crooked, that's leading people astray. And I just want to invite us as a church to grow here because if we expect the Holy Spirit to send us out in enemy lines, behind enemy lines as it were, to be light and salt, part of that is going to be having courage so that the Spirit of God can use us to speak plainly and clearly what is right and what is good and what is true. This is an area where we need to grow. And don't forget that Paul's decision to confront darkness in this way actually led to someone meeting Jesus. Now, I'm not saying let's go around and make people blind by the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that, but I am advocating that the Spirit of God pour out his presence on us so that you and I can have a backbone again, amen? All right, so with that said, that was a, not a very hearty amen, but that's all right. With that said, let me, let me close this. Where do we go from here? Well, as I said when I started, these five aspects are just some of the things we could talk about when we talk about what it is to be a gospel community. I want to I ask you, where do you need to grow here? Where, where are you doing well by the grace of God, and where do you need to grow? We're together because of Jesus under the authority of God for the sake of the mission in enemy-occupied territory to confront darkness and the power of the Spirit. Where do you need to grow here? The other thing I want to say is this is what you're being invited into when you join Frontline Church. This is what we're actively trying to do. We have about half of you in this room right now that are not in community groups. That's got to change if we're going to do any of this. You can't do this Jesus thing between you and Jesus or just you, Jesus, and your family. You actually need gospel community. So I want to invite you today to come and jump in. You can talk to Tyler Lindsay, our community director. You can grab any one of our team. You can go out to the lobby, and we've got a list of where our community groups are across the city. You're being invited into real gospel community. You're going to get let down. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get, uh, uh, you're going to just, it's just not always going to be ideally what you want it to be, and that's okay. It's still worth giving your life to. 
So I want to invite you in. Now, let, let, let me close by just reminding us of the reality of the grace of God for us. Because I, as I look at this list and I think about my own life, there's so many areas where I fall short. There's so many areas where God's ideal for gospel community and my reality is just really different. And the good news is that Jesus actually came and perfectly fulfilled all the ways that we fail. All the ways. When we talk about what it is to uh, be a multiplying community that brings people in, let's not forget that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived together forever in the Trinity before anything was ever created or made, and they were just fine, full of love and devotion and, and glory between the three persons of the Trinity. They didn't need us. But what does God do in his generosity? He sends Jesus to actually bring us into that same community of the Trinity. And then Jesus, Jesus, he, when he came, he lived perfectly under the authority of God. He calls us to be a community underneath his authority, but Jesus was a, was a man who lived under the authority of his father. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, you and I at times in our life say, God, not your will, but my will be done. And when we do that, Jesus is the faithful one who forgives us and actually was righteous on our behalf. Jesus is someone who didn't just live under the authority of God, but he lived for the sake of the mission of God. He said, I, my, my bread is to do the will of my Father. Everything that he did, he, he came to seek and to save the lost so that people who are far from God could be brought to Jesus. Jesus himself sends us into enemy-occupied territory, but before he does, he himself entered enemy-occupied territory. He didn't stay in the comforts and safety of heaven. He left, and Christmas tells us that he actually stepped down into the darkness of our world, the brokenness, the evil, the dysfunction. He took it all on as one of us. And finally, Jesus, more than anything, Jesus confronted the darkness and the power of the Holy Spirit. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He preaches the truth of Jesus Christ. He stands up and, and, and speaks truth to power in various different ways. He stands before Pilate and speaks truth to power there. Jesus confronts darkness ultimately by climbing up on a cross and dying in our place for our sins so that broken, busted up people like us could be forgiven, loved, and brought back into community with God and with one another. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? Today, we get to remember not just the gospel, but his grace that's on offer today. This is a meal that's not just looking back on what Jesus has done, and it's not just looking ahead to the future when we'll stand with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast with Jesus sitting down at his table. But today, in the middle of that, in the middle of those two meals, we get to feast with Jesus again. We get to feast with Jesus every week. And this is a meal where right now the grace of God is being offered to you as a Christian again and again and again to fill up what's lacking in you, to give you courage when you need courage. Maybe today you came in and you're really aware of your failures and you need to remember the words that we said earlier to, together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If your hope today is in Jesus, no condemnation for you. You might look at the list of what it is to be a multiplying gospel community and fail at five out of five of them, like is often the case in my own life and heart, Jesus is enough for you today. Amen? He loves you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. You're being invited to receive again the grace of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're gonna have prayers up on the screen that we wanna ask you to consider praying. 
while the rest of us take this meal. We're not asking you to come and take this meal because this is a meal of faith. And if you don't have faith in Jesus yet, then it's not a meal that makes sense. We actually want you to come to Jesus. We want you to come to Jesus today. We're gonna have men and women down front later that can tell you what it is to be a a Christian, tell you what it looks like to give your life to Jesus. We would love to do that. While we're taking this meal, either pray pray those prayers or maybe just stay where you're at and there will be no judgment at all. We are so glad you're here. And if you've got ways that you see us as, a, as an unbeliever not living up to this, we welcome your input. We welcome your critique. You can point out all our flaws and failures. We want to get better at this. You can help us. Okay? So we're glad that you're here. Followers of Jesus, when you're ready, come and receive the bread and the cup. We've got wine or juice based on your conscience. Get in groups together and let's do this.